Welcome. This is Felipe Jimenez, Assistant Professor of Law and Philosophy at the University of Southern California, and this is the Private Law Podcast. Hi, Larissa. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, hi. Well, thank you so much for having me, Felipe. This is a, a real a real honor and a delight. Well, it's an honor for me, too, to have you as a guest. So l let me start with a, uh, a question about your work on the foundations of property law. So in that work, you have referred to three levels of the theory of property. Can you talk to us a bit about this idea, this distinction between these three different levels? Uh, sure. Uh, so that was in a paper I, I wrote uh, on the... Um... I, I, you know, for the for a Cambridge companion to the philosophy of law, and and you know the three levels to which I referred in that paper, you know, really just concerned, uh, you know, conceptual normative analysis of the idea of property itself, and then how that idea of property can figure in uh, um, our understanding of, you know, how best, uh, you know, throughout the constitutional order to distribute, uh, you know, various benefits, uh, goods. Um, powers and so on. And so my work tends to focus on the first two, uh, you know, sort of the conceptual and normative foundations of, of property itself, uh, and then leaving aside the question of whether we ought to distribute the goods that property brings as property rights or in some other form to, to others um, who tend to do that, that work, political philosophers and, and others. Excellent. And so what, what is the relationship between these three different levels? So I, I, think, I think the distinction is, is It makes sense to me, but I also wonder what connections we can make between these conceptual normative questions and the questions of distribution within the public domain or within the constitutional order. Or do you think they're completely separate or that we're better off separating them more kind of starkly than we usually do? No, so I mean, so that's a great question. So I don't think you can entirely separate out conceptual and normative questions. So uh, I, I, I myself think that. Um, you know, the conceptual questions, the question of, you know, sort of what is property, what form does property take is really driven by, by the way in which property uh, as a as a concept is designed to respond to a kind of moral problem. Uh, and so understanding, of course, that moral problem to which property provides an answer gives us a better understanding of, of the shape of property, the shape it has to take, uh, the limits of property. And of course, it doesn't answer all Uh, normative questions, because, you know, once you see property as a form of, you know, human relation designed to resolve a particular moral problem, you have to consider what other normative problems does property itself generate and does it have within it the tools to, to provide solutions to those further normative questions, those further moral problems. Um, and so, of course, understanding the mo moral kind of or normative motivation for having property at all uh, doesn't provide a complete normative answer to whether it's justified, because, of course, you can solve one moral problem and introduce 10 more and not have solved them, uh, leaving, you know, one to kind of wonder whether property as an institution is fully justified. Could you give a bit more content to that. So I understand formally the distinction between the moral question that property answers and the moral problems or new moral questions that the institution of property generates once we answer that first question. But to, to flesh this out a bit more, can you tell us a bit yeah. about how you see that central question that property answers and those ulterior normative yeah. questions that it generates? 
Definitely. So, I mean, so the way that I see it, so property is a response to a very basic moral question that all human societies face, uh, which is the moral question of who has the standing to resolve what can be done with a thing um, where, you know, there's a usable sort of thing in our shared environment. There's this this sort of fundamentally moral question of, of who gets to decide, who has that, who has that authority. Uh, and none of us naturally can claim to that. I mean, lay claim to that. Whereas we may naturally sort of lay claim to the authority to make decisions about our persons. Uh, there's a kind of natural relationship, if you like, between, you know, my person and my, you know, agenda setting authority with respect to it. There is no such natural claim to a position of agenda setting authority uh, with respect to external things in the world. Uh, and so, you know, at the same time, while there's no sort of natural sort of resolution to this question of standing uh, when it comes to external things, as there is when it comes to our bodies or a person, we still need an answer. We still need to know who gets to decide when there is, uh, you know, a conflicting, uh, you know, set of views about what should be done with the thing and by whom. So, you know, property really closely responds to that problem of standing. It allows us to kind of generate an authoritative set of answers uh, to the question of what can be done with the thing and by whom. Uh, and therefore, it's sort of neatly tailored to respond to that moral problem. So, you know, that's great. It resolves that. But yet it doesn't answer all the other kind of morally pressing problems that, you know, we face when it comes to decision making about things. It doesn't solve, for instance, problems of equality or inequality. Uh, so while, while property, I think, is very well designed to, uh, you know, align decision making about things with the concern for legality, I don't think it's as well designed to align decision making uh, about things with the concern for sort of substantive equality. And so that would be an example where I think there is a kind of moral problem to which property provides an answer without uh, claiming for property an answer to these kind of enduring questions about, you know, equal access to resources, the kinds of concerns that I think egalitarians have and, and rightly have uh, when, when they study uh, institutions of property. So that would explain why, for instance, while property has provided an enduring answer to this concern, uh, you know, about standing and sort of explains why it is that hierarchical decision-making about things is tolerable, is something we can kind of accommodate within, you know, uh, a legal framework. Uh, it's still the case that that answer uh, has been more or less the same across time and place, even as we have seen, you know, political systems like committed to inequality, as well as, you know, more egalitarian liberal systems replace them, we see the system of property remaining recognizably the same, even as, you know, there's going to be, of course, you know, changes in the law here and there. It's still recognizably the same, at least within common law jurisdictions that I study. So there are, I think, really important normative moral questions that remain on the table uh, that property doesn't even try to solve in itself. Uh, questions that I think uh, concern egalitarians, concern political philosophers. Uh, but, you know, uh, if you sort of allow that, but still explain, you know, the moral question that property does solve, um, I think uh, you can you can be both a realist about property and its promise uh, and offer, uh, you know, a platform for critical thinking about reform and what can be done now, um, which, of course, leads me to that third level of analysis, which is really a concern about, you know, distributive justice. You know, we would do well to ask the question after we have sort of really figured out the nature of property, the moral questions to which it provides answers, 
we should really think hard about you know, whether all things considered, there isn't more that we want our legal systems to do and whether they have to do it through a property regime or whether they can do it outside of the property regime through some other sort of, you know, legal institutional framework. That's great. So so if if I go back to the central question that property answers, let's leave Kantian views of private law aside for a second. In American property theory, I think the debate is very much dominated by two relatively extreme views. So on one view, property rights are natural rights that we have before the state. At the other extreme, you have a kind of radically conventionalist view, which is basically property is just a creation of social conventions, and particularly of legal institutions. And so property is just this artificial thing that we create. And your view seems to say, yes, it is a convention, but it is a convention to one specific moral question, which generates the convention. So how does your view, how, how would you position your view vis-a-vis these two extremes? In what, uh, you know, for, from what you've said so far, it's very clear that it's not one or the other. But I wonder how you think about the relative positioning of your view regarding these two kind of extreme ends of the spectrum. I mean, yes. Yeah, so I, certainly I don't fit neatly into either, as you mentioned. Uh, I, I, I may share more with the, uh, you know, Liam Murphy's in the room. Uh, those who think that, you know, property law is necessarily a sort of a, a, a positivist thing, something which doesn't exist in in any defensible form in, in a state of nature. You know, so so I, I think that there are no natural offices. And I think of ownership as a kind of office and it is no exception. It's, it's, uh, it's not a kind of warrant to make a decision about a thing you could find independent of a constitutional order. Uh, and so very much I think of ownership as something embedded within a larger constitutional order understood as some system for allocating authority uh, of all kinds, right? Public and private authorities to public and private offices, where I just think of offices as, uh, you know, these um, sort of bounded positions uh, to to make a certain kind of decision, to resolve a certain kind of question uh, with uh, a state-backed warranty to do so. So so certainly it is very much a, a, a view um, of ownership, certainly, as as, as very much dependent on the idea of law within a constitutional order and very much not something that has any independent sort of moral status, right? I think it's, it is uh, what John Gardner might have referred to as a juridical fallacy, right? To, uh, to think that just because here is this thing in law that it has some sort of moral, uh, you know, sort of correlate out there, I don't think it does at all. Uh, because of the very nature of the decision owners claim to have the authority to make and 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 what distinguishes an owner and her claim of authority from you know someone who is uh, you know merely a, an occupier or someone in occupancy who's simply you know doing things uh, and um, perhaps claiming a kind of a moral right, a right not to be displaced, uh, a right you know, not to be deprived of necessities, but which is really just a position that depends on some kind of a justification rather than that is derived from this claim of authority. So so certainly I, I don't have much in common with with the Lockians. But that said, I do I do kind of use kind of state of nature kind of reasoning to think about uh, the problem of standing. So in a state of nature, in my view, 
you know, we sort of find ourselves in this moral quandary, right, where we confront usable things in our shared environment. And we're sort of either forced to forbear from using them altogether. And there are moral reasons not to deprive oneself of access to things that can advance plans in life. Or uh, we take them up and then we assert a kind of hierarchical claim vis-a-vis others. We, we, we subordinate others to our choices. Um, and so neither of those are the, the nature of this is a moral quantity, because of course, neither of those are morally justified uh, paths for people to take. Uh, and so ownership is, and the claim of authority um, that is made in the name of ownership is a kind of a solution that only law can provide. So I suppose I, I would say that I'm very much a positivist about, about property law. Um, uh, but that's not to say that what is property can take any shape whatsoever. What is property sort of takes the shape that it does because it is first and foremost a response to this very fundamental moral problem. Uh, and so property can go beyond that. It can give more than just an answer to that moral problem. And I think, indeed, uh, property today does, right? It gives us claims to all kinds of benefits that we can think of as simply, uh, you know, accessions to the office. So rights to profit and you know, all kinds of additional sort of benefits that one gets because one is the agenda setter um, that are sort of accessions to or accretions on that kind of basic fundamental position of authority. But fundamentally, ownerships um, as a response to that moral problem is, I think, a really important you know, aspect of my, my account that, that it has to be understood as, as first and foremost solving that problem uh, by bringing owners' decisions into um, alignment with uh, a concern for legality. So this strategy of thinking about property rights and private rights as responding to a specific moral problem that we encounter in a state of nature, but that can legitimately take multiple shapes once we're in civil society, looks very similar to a Kantian view. So would you characterize your view of property as Kantian, or would you actually distinguish your view from a traditional Kantian view of property rights? Well, Felipe, as you know, Kant is in the air here in Toronto, so... Uh... Uh, and I'm married to a Kantian. I think it's inescapable that I've been very much influenced by, you know, Kantian thought. Uh, and so there's very much a, a both a formal and a substantive aspect to my my views about ownership as an office. So it's not Kantian because I think that um, I wouldn't see as a Kantian would. I wouldn't see, you know, property as a as a right to exclude that exists at least in imperfect form in a state of nature. So I think that uh, the Kantian would want, of course, uh, to see this transition to civil society to perfect the claims we have to own. But the uh, the view that the Kantian, of course, takes that uh, property is is you know first of all just a right to exclude that that freedom uh, uh, accounts for the form that property takes. All of this gives the Kantian uh, a kind of a very clear view of property in a state of nature, even if it's not enforceable, right? There it is. Whereas I think both conceptually and normatively, the very idea of ownership as office really depends on thinking about it as a part of a constitutional order, as a part of law. Uh, it's just nailing down one more sort of piece, right, um, within that constitutional order by allocating authority to the owner to make decisions about particular things. Great. So I, I find this idea of ownership as, as an office very fascinating. So why don't you tell our listeners a bit more of why you understand ownership 
to be an office? And why, what do you think this type of view has as an advantage over other views? And you can take this, you could take it as, a, you know, in terms of uh, explanatory advantages or whether you also think it has normative advantages over other types of views. My, my view of, of um, ownership as an office has, you know, sort of been in the works uh, since I first published uh, Exclusion Exclusivity in 2008, uh, where I, I, I was just at that point really making uh, kind of doctrinally grounded observations about how ownership functions as this position of agenda setting authority. And I refer to it then as a kind of office. And I think what my, uh, you know, my thinking has has evolved uh, through my article on the moral paradox of adverse possession. I believe that was in 2012 and, and then after, where I started to think about uh, the problem of vacancy um, and the worries that the common law seemed to have with a vacancy in, in the position of ownership. It's concerned that there be someone in charge and doing the work of the owner, which is to say setting agendas for things such that others uh, you know, have this kind of framework, this normative framework within which they can make sense of the normative quality of their activities that engage things. And so that that kind of important work that the owner does within this kind of position of authority and the concern that the common law has for vacancy really percolated out of my sort of study of doctrine. So I am one of those common law fetishists that thinks the common law contains all kinds of really interesting philosophical insights that are just there to be excavated. And so uh, really, actually, methodologically, I kind of proceeded with that, uh, that view. Um, as silly as that even sounds when I say it, I just, I just kept on being struck by this, you know, just this really interesting idea that, that adverse possession really was a doctrine that responded to this concern about vacancy in office. And if the squatter was the one uh, who was, you know, taking up ownership authority and exercising it such that the paper title holder was not, what could the common law do but to recognize her as the one who was holding office at that point? And so that doctrinal sort of starting point has evolved over time to really understanding the normative contours of the very idea of office. And so I, I root that, the nature of offices, um, in a kind of understanding of um a certain understanding, I guess, of a problem of hierarchy, a starting point that my work shares with many Republican and liberal accounts of law. So, you know, just to quote Rousseau on this, the worst that can happen in the relations between one man and another is for one to find himself at the other's discretion. And so this nightmare of, of hierarchy, where one person has the power to decide a question concerning the lives of others, on my account is uh, dispelled only by ensuring that decision-making authority is exercised within and bounded by legally constituted offices. And so what the office really does is to render hierarchy consistent with the project of legality. Okay, so seen this way, um, offices are part of a constitutional plan for the allocation of authority. And seen that way, the office of ownership is also part of a collective plan for allocating authority in society that ensures that a particular kind of uh, discretion. It's only exercised by uh, the one with the, the sort of standing to make that decision um, on behalf of the rest of us. And so I suppose that thinking about ownership as an office presupposes thinking about things in the world as matters of shared concern, right? And this is another point of difference between my work and the Kantian's work, right? So I don't, I don't start with the view that 
things in the world, you know, are naturally associated with any one of us or, you know, can simply be taken up by any one of us because no one else until they take it up has an interest in them. You know, my understanding of things in the world is that they form part of an environment that is very much shared by humans living in proximity to one another. And so, uh, you know, any decision, uh, any exercise of discretion with respect to things as matters of shared concern represent this very concern, this, this nightmare of hierarchy, if those decisions are not taken within the bounded confines of office. Um, and so because I think of property law as concerned with a particular manifestation of the problem of hierarchy as it concerns our relations with respect to things in our shared environment, I, I think that the concept of office has a really important a normative role to play in my my theory of property as well as conceptual role. Um, so office explains why um, it's okay from a standpoint, from the standpoint of legality anyway, to subject others to an owner's discretion to set an agenda uh, for a thing that then has this effect of regulating everybody else's activity with respect to it. Can you unpack a bit this idea of legality that you have referred to a couple yeah. of times? So the idea of legality, as, as I'm referring to it here, is, is, is just the idea that authority, uh, discretionary authority in particular, which uh, engages matters of concern to all of us, be, be exercised within um, a kind of framework that can be understood to be on behalf of everybody else as participants in the constitutional order. It's subjecting decisions to law uh, and to legal constraints. Um, and so, you know, I mean, David Eisenhouse might think about that as rule of law, but I just think of it as, you know, a way of ensuring that there is a kind of legal answer to all problems of shared concern, that the law speaks and and, re, and has, a, has an answer that we don't need to take up, but is available to us to take up in respect of every matter of shared concern. So think of it uh, as a kind of way in which authority sort of is available to resolve all potential disputes over these kinds of matters of shared concern that while we may choose not to speak the language of law, to relate instead as friends or as neighbors or to engage each other in, you know, a kind of a different mode altogether, there is always this available legal answer. And I think it's really important that insofar as owners, you know, have any claim to make decisions about things in our shared environment, that the law uh, have a kind of say in that, that the law defines the contours of that decision-making authority and holds owners to making those decisions and not others uh, to prevent this, you know, the, the, the possibility, I guess, of um, domination, the problem of hierarchy with which Rousseau was so concerned. So it's very much like a Republican view about the virtue of having a legal system, right? The idea that exercises of power are constrained through an impartial framework. Is that kind of the, the idea? Or yeah. The I mean, I certainly, I certainly see it as, as something which Republicans, I, you know, I see it as Nico Kolodny has written um, in a very similar sort of Republican vein, liberal, liberal theorist, like, I mean, Arthur, sometimes I don't see as much base between the, uh, you know, the Kantians like Arthur and the Republicans. Uh, but uh, yeah, it is this concern with domination in effect, uh, concern with a problem of hierarchy, um, where, you know, one person is making decisions that concern the lives of others. And when it comes to external things in the world, I think there is always this, this matter that it should always be seen as a matter of, of concern um, to others, what decisions get to be made about external things in the world. 
That that's very useful. So let me move to a somewhat different topic you've written about, although it's definitely related to what we have been discussing, which is the idea that uh, the the question about the connection or the relationship between formal property rights and state power. So can you tell us mm-hmm. a bit about the view that you have in, about this relationship? There's a, a few different um, thoughts that I have that that might be of interest on this topic. So one is that because I think of ownership as an office within a, you know, sort of larger constitutional order, I also think that ownership as an office, the kind of authority that owners have to make a certain kind of decision necessarily connects up with the authority of public offices, right? The, the, the business that is charged to some public office to do. So, you know, one can think of public officials as having within their sort of uh, domain, a certain set of questions. Um, that ought to be within a, you know, harmonious constitutional order consistent with the authority that owners have, that we shouldn't see a kind of inconsistency in the offices, the structures of authority within any given constitutional order. Um, And so uh, I think what that means is that sometimes owners will have to stand down to the state when it sort of makes a call that is at the core of of any particular state office. Uh, and so we see this sort of, for example, like in zoning law and land use law to some extent, right? So insofar as the state or some public office is charged with uh, seeing to public health, safety, and welfare in some dimension or other, uh, you know, the decisions that that office takes about, uh, you know, for example, pollution should not be seen as inconsistent with uh, ownership authority, but simply as part of the same sort of a harmonious constitutional framework, wherein each office is going to make its own decisions and any sort of conflict is worked out in much the same way that nuisance law, you know, works out conflicts between neighboring landowners, right, where we have to kind of somehow render these positions consistent one with the other. And so we guard against unreasonable interferences with decision making to ensure a kind of systematicity of public office, private office of offices generally. So that would be my sort of my view that that state power, owners power, if you want to call it that, it's all just power, just carved up into different offices, which are going to be consistent uh, with one another. And there's going to be principles within that legal order that render them consistent to the extent that there appears to be a conflict. Uh, and so I think that we would we would have to, you know, uh, appeal to such principles, even if they are, you know, sort of implied as opposed to expressed in a given constitutional order to explain why it is the case that owners need to accept that public regulation is going to limit their choice set to some extent, right? That is just the rendering consistent of these two offices within the same constitutional order. Great. So can I ask you two things about this? So one is... What are those implicit principles that we can figure out to work out the the coherence or the, the the consistency between exercises of state power and the rights of owners or the office of owners yeah. in your framework? That's one question. What are the principles? And the second, mm-hmm. you talk a lot about how we shouldn't see exercises of state power as necessarily an intermission into private ownership because, in fact, private ownership is an office that is part of this overall coherent, systematic constitutional framework of public and private offices. But there has to be a limiting principle, right? There has to be some constraint or some notion of, you know, at some point, what the state is doing is just subverting Mm -hmm. the office or just transforming the office of private ownership into something else. So why don't you tell us a bit about those two things? First, the principles. Yeah. Second, how do they limit 
or tell us when the state is just going too far in limiting the office of, of private ownership? Great. So I think the the first uh, you know the first kind of principle is that every office is is uh, internally limited by a principle of abusive right, or we might even call it abusive power if you want to think of uh, a certain category of rights is really uh, properly understood more about you know sort of authoritative decisions than anything else. Um, and so offices are, of course, as I've argued in my uh, Yale Law Journal piece, and I don't even remember when, <laughs> internally limited by such a principle of abusive right. So too are public offices. So there are there are purposes associated with each office. Offices are always charged with doing something. This is the very nature of offices, that there's a job to be done. There can be no office without a kind of job to be done associated with that office. Um, and so there's purposes always associated, and those purposes generate then the principle of abusive right. One cannot exercise power uh, conferred for a purpose uh, for for reasons or purposes entirely unrelated to that uh, to that conferral of power in the first place. And so that, as a first pass, ought to get us some way toward, in a sense, avoiding conflict, right? So if everyone just sticks to their knitting and does their business, you know, we should have owners doing the agenda setting over there. We should have the state doing, you know, its you know, protection of public health over here, and everyone gets along. Now, that's, of course, you know, true to some extent, that would be the first pass to internally limit offices so that, you know, we have these well-defined warrants to make a certain kind of decision resolving a particular question and no other. But it's inevitably the case, uh, as, you know, as I mentioned before, as we even see within private property, within private offices, that there is overlap, there is spillover. Uh, and so then how do we resolve those problems where there's, you know, this, you're you're doing your business, I'm doing my business, but it turns out that you're doing your business interferes with my ability to do mine, right? Where I'm busy setting the agenda for a thing and thereby, you know, spewing pollution in the air and destroying public health and, or you're trying to deal with public health. Uh, and so you're suppressing pollution, but oh, wait, you're, you know, preventing my sort of setting out an agenda within which all private parties can interact harmoniously. Well, so I think that in addition to the principle that internally limits offices by ensuring that there's this, you know, sort of exercise of authority just for the purposes for which it's conferred, there is also this kind of principle of reciprocity or reciprocal respect for other office holders within the larger constitutional order. Think of that as, as you will, perhaps as loyalty to the plan as a whole, and if you want to think of it as a plan. But I think uh, in a more fine-grained way, again, appealing to the law of nuisance here, you know, the reciprocity uh, that I'm describing will uh, require that each holder of an office within the same constitutional order uh, refrain from unreasonably interfering with the exercise of neighboring office holders, right? Uh, where neighboring now is not understood, uh, you know, sort of literally in terms of geographic proximity, but in terms of adjacent authority, right? Like, so you're deciding a question adjacent to the question I decide, I'm not going to unreasonably interfere with your exercise of authority. And um, I'm going to put up with reasonable interferences with mine. And so we have a way in which we can explain then when public regulation reasonably interferes with my choice set, but doesn't entirely take over the business of setting the agenda for things. I think that's just something I have to swallow, right, on this kind of principle of reciprocity, assuming, of course, there's been no abuse of right. Right. So there's no, uh, you know, uh, overreach by the adjacent official. So I think those two principles are a good start in explaining how we can construct a coherent 
system of offices, each charged with doing its own thing for its own purposes. But, you know, understanding that these are not entirely independent. There's a system and it, it, it works together. So it sounds to me like on, on your account, private property looks a lot like administrative law. Uh, you know, it's an office. It's an office with a set purpose, which is public in, in at least one relevant sense, which is it is part of an overall scheme of governance or of a constitutional order of, or of mm -hmm. a plan about how to uh, do things around here, you know, so to speak. And and if you abuse it, it's an overreach and an abuse of power, and there's a limit to that. And that just looks a lot to me like uh, these the ideas of control of administrative discretion in public agencies. So do you see yeah. that analogy, uh, uh, which which I think it's very interesting and suggestive, but I also wonder, I mean, I don't have this concern personally, but I also can see how private lawyers might be concerned that, that this is just treating private law as a form of private administrative law or of, uh, you know, taking the public law model of public officials into private law. Okay, so a couple of things. I have actually quite a lot to say about that because, you know, yes, of course, I'm going to say right up front, superficial, quick answer. Yeah, of course, there's definitely analogies to administrative law. This is about discretion. It's about the control of discretion. It's about, you know, decision making. It's about a kind of system of offices. But, okay, there's a number of really, really important, I think, differences nuances, um, and also, I think, philosophical insights that come out of studying property first that perhaps aren't available to the administrative lawyer. And so let me sort of start by saying that the account that I have given is an account of decision-making in a very decentralized system. So the offices that I'm describing are connected, but they are not streamlined within a bureaucratic sort of chain of command. And so there's a kind of a decentralized form of administration going on, popularized in the sense that it's available to just any ordinary person to kind of take up the office and make decisions within it. And that in itself uh, is, I think, a very important feature of my account of property. And so I have um, a d book delayed by COVID, uh, you know, forthcoming with Oxford University Press called People and Things. Um, I, I may change that title. I've been, uh, I've been sort of told that that's just not the right title. I, I happen to like it. But, um, but the idea there is to think about uh, how property functions, right? Um, over time, you know, where we've seen these sort of radical changes in the political order, right? You know, through feudalism, you know, sort of, uh, the welfare state, you know, sort of functioning in kind of much more sort of, you know, libertarian context as well, or potentially could be functioning, I guess, in, in more liberty, like sort of, sort of uh, night watchman state type political orders. But through whatever political order you find property, what you have in property, what's available through property is a form of decentralized decision making about something that is of shared concern, right? So it ceases to be property when we take that question out of that kind of decentralized network of offices and place it in the hands of a kind of hierarchically, you know, sort of bureaucratized system of offices, then it would just become probably more administrative law, right? But there's a whole bunch of doctrine, a whole bunch of principles that have, you know, sort of, you know, arisen out of the this idea of, of ownership as a kind of office within a decentralized, popularized, you know, system of decision making 
that I think is really interesting. And so, so possession actually is one really interesting doctrine, I think, that is um, uh, really important in a decentralized system of the kind I'm describing. Whereas I have a recent UTLJ paper on um, ownership um, as office and the building blocks of a, of a legal order, uh, where I talk about how possession operates as, a, as a, a default procedure for appointment to office in a decentralized system. In default of any other procedure for appointing someone to office, you know, possession is always available. And uh, this explains, I think, how possession came to be this really important mode of acquiring office, really, and, uh, you know, remains available even as it has become less and less important, actually, empirically, I think. There are very few things that we have today that we claim to have legitimately because we've taken first possession of them, right? I mean, we almost always acquire our things derivatively from someone with authority to give. Um, so anyway, so I think that the most important thing I would say is that unlike sort of modern administrative law, what I'm describing is a decentralized, popularized system for decision making that has these important principles at work within it that keep it operational, right? To, that, that ensure that it kind of meets this sort of basic requirements of legality, but doesn't do more. And we might want it to do more. We might want to say something like, this is, again, back to your first question about the three levels of analysis. We might say, okay, great. This basic decentralized system, it answers your basic moral problem of standing, right? It ensures that decision-making in, in the office of ownership is sort of consistent with the demands of legality, ensure that no one is anyone else's sort of a superior outside of office. Great. But it doesn't do all these other things that we want it to do. It doesn't have a fair system for procedure. It doesn't allow others, you know, access to, you know, the pathways to property in the same way. There's so much more we should demand of our system of property, right, for it to live up to these other values that we have. And I would be totally fine with that. Totally fine with someone saying, you know, the decentralized, popularized system was, was fine when we couldn't afford better. But we can now. So, so why do we leave these important decisions about things, especially land? to, you know, whoever happens to hold the office today without having to establish any sort of, uh, you know, qualification for office, any fitness for office. Uh, and, and, and that's a totally fair thing to say. And just think it's really important to, uh, to explore just to how rich and I think interesting that the system is on its own before we go around opposing, you know, improvements to it. Excellent. Uh, I could spend a lot more time talking about your views about property, uh, But uh, perhaps we'll uh, we'll leave that to a further discussion when your books when your book comes out. But uh, before finishing, I wanted to talk a bit about your uh, views about equity. Uh, so you've it's more recent work where you've developed a view about equity and equitable remedies. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about your view about these topics. Great. So equity. I mean, what an interesting what an interesting topic. Uh, for all of my sort of, you know, working life as a, as a lawyer and an academic, I've encountered equity in various forms. As a lawyer at Sullivan and Cromwell, I had a case that turned on the maxim, equity abhors a forfeiture. And I remember just being absolutely fascinated about, you know, what's equity and why does it abhor anything, let alone forfeitures and what kinds of forfeitures. And, you know, I, I, I've always been fascinated by uh, the idea of equity But I was never sure whether equity was just more law. Uh, and, you know, um, over the past few years, I've, I've developed a view of equity as a distinctive form of reasoning about a particular problem uh, that we face in our lives together. Um, and uh, the, dis the distinctive form of reasoning that I think of as equitable reasoning 
uh, operates to resolve a problem that arises on the pathways in and out of property rights, in and out of office. So in a sense, equity takes a sort of external point of view on the system of law that we have, that constitutional order that puts in place those offices we were just talking about, takes that kind of point of view and 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 has a look at uh, how um, one comes to be that person in charge, right? How one comes to have legal rights or, you know, in the context of property law, it's not just property, it's also contract, I think, that equity is concerned with. But but also these sort of positions of authority. And so in a paper um, I I wrote for the Philosophical Foundations of Equity, a paper called, um, I can't remember exactly the title, something about equity and the pathways to property rights. Uh, I, I, I really was looking at how equity takes up this question of um, how how we ought to interact or how how we well in other words what protections one can claim especially against interruption along the pathways to property rights where there are these temporally extended pathways for fulfilling the criteria that the common law has set down for acquiring property right so property rights um, are always they always stand to be acquired. There's no natural property. And so all the procedures for acquiring property rights are, in a sense, temporally extended ones. So um, whether it is possession, right, even just plucking an apple will take at least some time, right? There are steps to be taken, preparatory steps, and then steps toward the completion of that procedure. Derivative procedures, too, like agreements for purchase and sale, followed by the closing, right, of the agreement, right? Uh, which is the point at which the property is actually transferred, there's always going to be this kind of temporally extended procedure for acquiring property. And wherever there's a temporally extended procedure for acquiring property, there is a potential for interruption, right? For interrupting someone along the way or for, in any other sense, sort of diverting or rerouting some of the benefits that they stood to um, uh, to to come to own as property rights in virtue of having you know, some position in law. And so equity, as I understand it, regulates those pathways in and out of property rights. It also sort of regulates the the ability of someone to use law in order to pull off one of these unfair interruptions or unfair diversions. Now, the thing about equity that I should point out is equity, equity by its very nature is concerning itself with something that's a bit wishy-washy. So, uh, you know, Carol Rose was always very interested in crystal edges and then, you know, sort of muddy things, very concerned about the the kinds of doctrine um, that was, you know, just not clearly and crisply defined. So equitable doctrine has become over time juridified, hardened into kind of clearer shapes. Uh, So too has some of the pathways to property rights become well-worn and clearer right? Um, such that we can kind of see when we're on our way to something such that we know we have a right to equity's protection against intervention. But equity wouldn't be doing its its job as equity, right? Uh, nor would courts be agents of equity, properly speaking, if they didn't keep their eyes out for new ways of interfering or interrupting uh, those who are on their way to property rights, to acquiring something that the law would protect as property. And so there's a sense in which equity always retains its essential sort of innovative discretionary feel, right, which is familiar to us from sort of older philosophical ideas of equity as doing justice in a particular case. 
Excellent. Uh, Larissa, I wanted to thank you again for being part of the podcast. This has been a very interesting conversation and uh, I can't wait to read your uh, new book on property theory once it comes out with whatever title it does come out. (laughs) I'll be polling people. Thanks so much, Felipe. 